For much of the last six weeks, the Seattle Metro has been inundated with wildfire smoke from several wildfires in the Cascade Mountains east of us, with the Bolt Creek Fire being the largest among them. Communities along the Puget Sound have fared better than most, as winds moving up and down the sound helped keep the smoke at bay. This shifted in the last few days, with Seattle, as well as Portland, waking up to the worst air quality in the world. Visibility was so bad in Seattle, I was unable to see the hill just to the south of us, normally visible on a clear day, absent occasional pea soup-like fog conditions. Job sites are closed. Normally, by this date in October, we would have seen over two inches of rain. This year, we have seen a trace, just one one-hundredth of an inch. The number of heating degree days is also significantly lower compared to this time on a normal basis. What this means is that we are significantly warmer than normal, we are significantly drier than normal, and these conditions are likely to be the new normal for the Pacific Northwest. Today on The Livable Low Carbon City, we're going to be talking about wildfire smoke mitigation and why passive house mandates should be necessary. Welcome to The Livable Low Carbon City podcast, the show about the interconnectedness of low carbon living, decarbonized buildings, and quality of life. I am your host, Michael Eliason, architect and founder of Large Lab. Normally this time of year, the air quality in Seattle is pretty phenomenal. The rain washes away the remnants of dust, smoke, and other pollutants. But in the last couple of years, This has shifted dramatically. Our region is slowly drying out, and I think this is difficult for a lot of people to comprehend because the history of the western slopes of the Cascades and the Pacific Northwest are one of significant moisture and rain and comfortable conditions. Many of the people I know who moved to Seattle did so because they felt this region would be more protected against the effects of climate change than perhaps others. And to be honest, when we first moved here, that was part of the appeal for me as well. Seattle builds itself as a sustainable city. It's a green city. Presumably, we would be able to stay that way. But the reality is the region is drying out. The western slopes of the Cascades, which are steep mountainous terrains with ample trees and bio-based fuels, and as they dry out, the wildfires will conceivably get worse. Now, on the eastern side of the mountains, it's a bit of a different situation. There's actually not as much fuel. Things are already dry. Wildfires have been consistent for decades. But what we've seen the last few years, as the wetter regions start to burn, the breadth and degree of wildfire smoke tends to be both denser and significantly broader. And I think because it's located in places that people aren't expecting it and never really had to think about it, it has sort of changed the game on how we mitigate and adapt to this this new normal. Another issue that we have to contend with on this side of the mountains versus the other, as the population is significantly denser. So from a public health standpoint, there are significantly more people who are directly affected by the wildfire smoke. And because we have a really tragic history around land use and housing, we actually have cities that nestle right up into the foothills and into the mountains uh, and into the forest. There's not a lot of defensible space for these houses. The wildland urban interface has not been maintained to the degree that it should have been. And so we have this condition where the suburbs are affected effectively just rolling right into the mountains. And so without this defensible space, we could start to see some really interesting effects as these neighborhoods continue to dry out and wildfires spread and get larger. Most of the smoke from the latest fire has been the Bolt Creek Fire, 
which is the fifth largest fire on record and is the largest fire to date that I'm aware of on the western side of the Cascades. It is unlikely that this will maintain its status. I think going forward, there will be many more instances of events like this where we have smoke on and off for several weeks, if not months. And so how we start to adapt and mitigate to this environment is really going to be quite critical. The air quality was so bad, it was unhealthy for a significant swath of the population. And we know that wildfire smoke is connected to a number of public health issues. It affects sleep, it causes migraines, it affects asthma, and it's even been linked to cancer. And so the mitigation of this smoke is not going to be critical just from a short-term standpoint, from being able to breathe in our homes, in our offices, and in our schools, but also in terms of keeping public health costs down long-term. So mitigating the public health effects of wildfire smoke, just as mitigating the public health effects of social isolation or other health conditions, pays off in the long run, and it's extremely critical that we do these things. And this is one of the reasons that I've been a huge advocate for passive house and passive house mandates here in the Pacific Northwest for over a decade. The passive house standard is a low energy standard originally developed in Europe based on principles that were really honed in here in the US and Canada. And it effectively does a couple of things. One, it optimizes the thermal envelope so that we're not losing heating or cooling through our exterior walls to a significant degree. We are, Passive House also requires a level of airtightness in a building that is significantly higher than all codes in the U.S. require. And this is achieved through gaskets, membranes, tapes, even gypsum. And this is important for a couple of reasons. One, when air moves through a building envelope, it's moving pollution, it's moving moisture, it's moving heat. And so when we make our building airtight in the Passive House, we're significantly reducing the amount of heat lost through that envelope, which in a typical house, up to 40% of your heat loss can be due to the lack of airtightness. And then because of our building being airtight, we still need fresh air to breathe. We incorporate a mechanical system, a heat recovery ventilation system to simultaneously exhaust stale air and supply fresh filtered air to the residents or occupants of the building. And the HRV is kind of a magic box for passive house because we've optimized our thermal envelope because our air tightness is so superior as we're extracting the warm exhaust air from the building. The HRV, the heat recovery ventilator can recoup that energy and redirect it, that, that warmth, the heat into the incoming air. And so when that air is sent to bedrooms or classrooms or other occupied spaces, not only is it fresh air, it's 100% exterior air, but it's also filtered and then it's tempered. And so you're not having this condition where you get cold air blown on you in your building. And so what all of this combined does is it makes the heating demand or the cooling demand for your building ridiculously low. And in many instances, you may not even need heating or cooling for much or most of the year. But when you take these aspects of the air tightness and the utilization of fresh filtered ventilation through a heat recovery ventilator, it does a couple of things. The first is we're controlling the amount of pollution that comes into a building, right? So we're eliminating exterior sources of pollution in that building. So car exhaust, air pollution, wildfire smoke, all of those things are kept outside of the building. And then if we're smart, we're doing things on the interior side to reduce sources. For example, keeping our buildings fossil fuel free, not burning fossil fuel gas in our buildings. And so with all of these things combined, we have a very high 
indoor environmental quality. Other co-benefits tend to be reduced mold and mildew in a passive house building, reduced drafts. There's no thermal bridges, so you don't have cold floors and cold points. There's generally significantly less dust in a passive house building as well. And one of the things I like to joke about is that they're spider-free. So because of our airtight construction and because of the way that we're building our wall assemblies and roof assemblies and floor assemblies, there's not really a lot of space for critters or spiders to form a habitat. And passive house works around the world. It works in cold climates. It works in moderate climates, temperate climates like Seattle. It works in hot climates like the Middle East and Africa. There's a really elegant Passive House Embassy Building in Kinshasa. And it works in hot and humid environments as well. So the South, Southeast Asia, there are a number of Passive House buildings as well. So it's a standard that works globally. And really what we're changing between different regions is the levels of insulation or the number of panes in our windows, mechanical systems, and things of that nature. But one of the reasons that I think Passive House, especially here in the Pacific Northwest, should be the minimum baseline standard, that it is so effective at keeping out not just wildfire smoke, but air pollutants and other sources of pollution as well. And it's that combination of the air tightness and the HRV, right, working to keep those sources outside of the building. And so when I think about this, I think about lost opportunities at climate adaptation. So I initially had a conversation with folks at the city of Seattle in 2011 about incorporation of passive house as kind of a minimum standard for city buildings, for public buildings, for residential buildings, and of course was immediately rebuffed. Since that time, over 80,000 new homes have been built and almost none of them meet Passive House. Most of the apartments are small, single-aspect studios or one-bedrooms. Many of them don't have balanced ventilation systems. They don't have a means to keep out smoke, wildfire smoke, and other pollutants. And so they're missing, I think, a critical component of what climate-adaptive buildings will need to look like in a warming world, in a world with longer wildfire smoke seasons or stronger wildfire smoke seasons. And then there's also the missed opportunities of all of the public buildings in Seattle, in King County, in Western Washington that have not been built to the passive house standard. And so it's more difficult to keep wildfire smoke out of them that may not have the right ventilation system or the ability to pre-filter ventilation to keep out wildfire smoke. And this goes back to the issue of resiliency. Seattle, like most other cities, has a history of opening up public spaces, public buildings during extremely cold weather for people to get out of the cold, right? This is a really smart use of resources. And we've also started to do this in summer as well, using public buildings as cooling centers. But we're still missing that third component. As our air quality shifts dramatically and our building stock and housing stock do not have the capability of keeping these houses as places of respite from the wildfire smoke, then we should be looking to public facilities as a means of mitigating it. And, you know, so one of the ways that we could do, be doing this is to utilize public buildings as fresh air centers. So these are places where people could go when the wildfire smoke has inundated their own home or their own work, they need a space to get out of the smoke and breathe. And so if we had built all of our recent public buildings, schools, pools, libraries, fire stations, community centers, et cetera, into being these resiliency hubs that did have the capability to provide fresh filtered air from the wildfire smoke and were airtight to keep out that smoke and could add cooling, then in events such as last year's heat dome, 
you know, people would be able to escape those elements and have a place to breathe fresh air, to breathe clean air, and to maintain a cool body temperature so they're not overheating. In looking at the British Columbia coroner's report on the majority of deaths during the heat dome last year, these were mostly residential buildings. They were in double-loaded corridors. They didn't have the ability to cross-ventilate. They didn't have cooling. Cooling wasn't retrofitted into these buildings. And so you can see in a warming world where these issues can start to take on much more dramatic effects. And so I look at the opportunity that Seattle could have had over the last 20 years, knowing that the western slopes of the Cascades were going to continue to dry out and would start to burn, that we could have been building this framework where all of our new housing, and by the way, 80,000 homes, that's 20% of our housing stock, that's one in five homes, would be resilient against the smoke. And so many of these homes are apartments. They're not single-family homes. And so they're places where people who are generally not as wealthy are living. And so if we had this floor, this minimum building standard that was climate adaptive and could mitigate these effects, we would have created the situation where residents would have a safe place to sleep and live during a climate event. But because we haven't set up that framework, because we haven't adopted Passive House as a minimum building standard, because we haven't mandated fresh filtered ventilation for all new residential buildings, we're not in that situation. We're in the place where many of our residents do not have fresh air in their homes. They do not have the ability to cool off in their homes, especially if we lose power, right? And so the opportunities that we've lost are significant in creating a city that is resilient and adaptive. And this is slowly changing. There are discussions about resiliency hubs and community centers, but we're just tackling this now. These are things that we should have been planning to do 10 or 20 years ago. Instead, we haven't really paid attention to it. We've spent tens of billions of dollars in car infrastructure, which effectively makes the situation worse. And we're tackling this situation a decade or more later than we should have been. So we're already going to be digging out of a hole. And now that hole has, has just gotten deeper. You know, in our own home, our approach to managing smoke has been a multi-pronged approach. I picked up an aware element last year that we used to kind of monitor air quality and have a sense of how bad the CO2 levels are in our house or how bad the air quality from the wildfire smoke, the PM 2.5 is. We have a relatively tight house. We can close all of our windows and most of them have been retrofitted to be three, three pane windows with multiple seals. So they're relatively airtight and those are really effective at keeping out the smoke. But because we don't have a ventilation system, then the CO2 levels, the carbon dioxide levels in our house shoot up. So we can go to sleep at night and it's fairly comfortable, our CO2 levels are under six, 700, but overnight, we have a small family, everyone breathing overnight, you know, that CO2 number starts to go up pretty dramatically. And so it's not uncommon that people wake up and the CO2 level is at levels where headaches become common and it's uncomfortable. And we can open the windows, but then we're inundated with the smoke. We have to play this game where kind of crack the windows a little bit so that we're getting fresh air. And then we've built a Corsi Rosenthal box, which is a four-sided filter with a fan on top and the air is drawn through the filters to cleanse the air. This was actually really common for a lot of households during COVID. And I know a number of households that are now utilizing this approach to manage wildfire smoke in their house as well. There are other approaches that you could use with air purification systems and whatnot. So there are approaches to deal with it, but it takes energy. If the power goes out, what do you do? It's really difficult to find that balance. And I feel like we're relatively fortunate because A, 
I already know about these issues. And so I can start to approach them from that standpoint. And B, the situation in our house is likely better than most in being able to mitigate some of these things. If you look at older houses in Seattle and sometimes even new construction, windows don't even close all the way. And so there's no way to keep the source at bay to the degree that you should be able to in something like a passive house. And so I'll end here and I'll note a couple of things. One, this isn't the last time it's going to happen, right? The cascades are drying out probably faster than anticipated. And with a lot of fuel, a lot of sprawl, poor land management, weak energy codes, which the IPCC's working group three were already a form of carbon lock-in. And we're kind of kicking that up a notch and realizing that it's not just carbon lock-in, but it's also actively preventing climate adaptation and climate mitigation to the degree it could. We're going to need to pivot really quickly into providing places where people can get out of the smoke and can breathe fresh air. We're going to need to pivot to retrofit existing homes to deal with wildfire smoke and while still providing ventilation and other things for occupants of buildings. So there's going to be a lot of work, I think, in the next couple of years, especially on the West Coast, especially in the Pacific Northwest, about how do we rapidly uptake these changes. And outside of significant incentives or mandates, I'm not really sure how we get there. And I'll finish with this. Our mayor flew down to the C40 Mayor Summit underway in Buenos Aires this week. And I think this is a really good analogy to the massive leadership void on climate action in our city, but not just our city, a lot of other cities as well. So our city is in an actual climate emergency, some of the most toxic and suffocating air that we have ever experienced. And we have a mayor who promised not to lead with bikes, claims to be a climate leader, but doing nothing on climate action or climate adaptation, flying down for four or five minute conversation on a panel. Contrast this with Boston's mayor, Michelle Wu, who does lead with cycling, is very much a climate leader, who decided to join via teleconference. Now, this may not seem like a significant shift to a lot of people, but to me, it signifies many things. One, it's a mayor who understands the effects of what she does and what she's modeling, how that can affect other people, and how upending what has been a fairly unsustainable business-as-usual approach to dealing with climate change and climate action does need to be changed and does need to be reprioritized and rethought so that we can lead on issues around adaptation and mitigation. This isn't the episode of the podcast this week that I was planning on, but this issue has been gnawing at me for the last couple of weeks, and the air quality was so incredibly bad that I felt this this was a subject that needed to be elevated. Interjecting this one, and then next week we'll be back to our normal program. And that's all I have for you this week. Ciao. Thanks to our listeners for joining us on the Livable Low Carbon City podcast. We'll be back with another episode soon to broaden the discourse and highlight how we can co-create a low-carbon urban future together. If you'd like to know more about what Larch Lab is doing, please subscribe to our monthly newsletter. I'll add the link to the episode notes.